0: Welcome to the latest episode of the Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament Podcasts. I think it's safe to say at this point that we are your two regular hosts, myself, Blaine Dowler,
1: and Alex Case.
0: And we know we promised you that we'd be going through Tron Legacy this time around. That has been recorded, it is coming up, but we wanted to get this one out in a little more timely fashion. Because this time around we actually pulled a movie that we were thinking about reserving for the superhero franchise, but we're dropping it here instead because we're recording this the day that the remake or relaunch of the series comes out. That's right, we are talking about the 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles which was a big part of so many childhoods.
1: Indeed. I watched the heck out of this movie as a kid.
0: Yeah, so how old were you in 1990?
1: Um, I was five, however I didn't really see it until it was out on video, and I watched the heck out of it on video. And it's actually one of the first, maybe not the first DVD I bought, but it's kind of up there on the list. But since I saw it was on widescreen, and by the time I got a DVD I recognized that pen and scan is not the way to enjoy a movie.
0: No, I would definitely agree with that. I saw this myself in theaters shortly after it came out. It was released on March 30th of 1990. So at the time, I was 12, and I was in about grade 6, so I was right on the high end of the target market. The cartoon was out. I was watching that regularly. When this hit, my friends and I were all over this movie. So we watched this one many, many, many times. I mean, it is, as I said, a big part of the childhood, because Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles have never been as popular as they were in the late 80s and early 90s. They first appeared in comics in 1984. They tried getting this movie made as early as 1986. Nobody had the faith in the property needed to get it to the screen until the deal with Playmates, when they were, again, trying to ride high on that wave starting with He-Man, following with Transformers and G.I. Joe, where tying a cartoon to other products, especially a toy line, had proved immensely popular for the people who owned the rights to it. So Playmates partnered, and they the cartoon of this came out. That proved successful, and then it was enough that people decided they would take a risk on the live-action film.
1: Uh, yeah. And I guess part of what really impressed me the most about this about this movie getting made and through the whole process and of all this is this is a movie that is basically born out of a comic book that had an initial print run of 2000 copies or less. It's it is very much the underground comic done good movie.
0: It is. Or at least to the degree that it's an accurate adaptation. They did make some adjustments. I admit I haven't read the original comics. I keep meaning to and I've just never gotten around to it.
1: I have read the like first 3 issues. I picked up copies of them, uh, the uh, trade from the library and checked those out and read those. So I have a passing familiarity with with the the, the opening of the basically the series. And however, I did did also maybe not watch a lot of the '90s cartoon, um, but I kind of did, did absorb did absorb a fair amount of it. If not from directly watching it, then through osmosis, because hey, I was a kid in the '90s, and that show was on forever. Yeah,
0: it ran for a long time, and then of course there was the next mutation live action series with Venus De Milo as the female turtle who was always looking for the nonviolent solutions, no stereotyping there, and then a couple of other animated series, including the one that's on the air through Nickelodeon now.
1: Probably the one that's been most that was the most faithful to the original cartoon, what, not the original cartoon through the comic was like the 2003 one that was done by Four Kids on the Fox Box. I mean, they still had to tone certain bits of it down, but there are a fair amount of plot bits which even that cartoon kept right that the movie got wrong.
0: Yeah, it's my understanding that even April O'Neil's job has changed dramatically from the comics. Yep. Yeah, from what I've read, she started as the assistant to Baxter Stockman. That's right. So the whole TV reporter thing started with the cartoon and was translated to the movie from there.
1: You might as well talk about the movie, I guess, since since we've gotten to that.
0: Yeah, so the uh, basic plotline of the movie is summarized in about four minutes by Partners in Crime, if you <laughs> listen to that very well-known track that goes over the closing credits of this film, and comes back again in uh, TMNT 3, or at least on the soundtrack for sure. But essentially, there's a crime spree where somebody is training teenagers to be exceptional thieves, purse snatchers, pickpockets, cleaning out you know entire truckloads of material in seconds, in complete silence, and TV reporter April O'Neill has made links to the activities in Japan several years ago based on the Foot Clan, who are, of course, originally introduced in the comics as a parody of the Hand Ninja Clan from Daredevil Comics, created by Frank Miller.
1: Yeah. I do want to pop in for a moment here. Mention the bit with the cleaning out the truck in seconds. Back in the Silver Screen Superman podcast, you mentioned the bit where uh, Christopher Reeves as Superman goes behind the wall and then comes out as, um, and then comes out the door as Clark Kent is the shot that you spent your, a large portion of your childhood trying to figure out how they did it. Mm-hmm. For me, that was the scene with the truck. In uh, the shot where we hit the movie as we're going over this montage of Foot Clan crimes, while, uh, while April O'Neil is doing her TV broadcast, one of the shots we see is we see a guy taking a box off the back of a truck to deliver, and the camera pans to follow him. And camera goes completely out of shot from or the, the contents of the truck go completely out of shot. The guy delivers the box. The person signs for it and as he comes back. The back of the truck is completely empty all done in one take, and for the longest time, tried to figure out how they did that. Because, particularly now, with me paying close attention on DVD with the widescreen, I can see that it's not doesn't look like it's a matte painting or any sort of drop there that you can just pull up when it's out of frame. So, I am really interested in seeing I'd really love to know how they did that. Unfortunately, this is a movie that has never gotten a good DVD release, so nobody's done a director's
0: commentary on it.
1: No, they haven't.
0: I don't think it's terribly challenging to, to pick it out, though. When you're watching that scene, the truck looks full, but it looks full with a large or a small number of large boxes right up to the back of the truck. And you never see the truck in motion. So all they have to do is just mute the shock so it doesn't move much. You still see it wiggle a little bit, but not, not terribly much. You mute that to cut that down, and when you set up the shot, you just have those boxes empty in the back of a truck with extras tucked down and behind them, as soon as they're out of frame, the extras just pick up the boxes on their way out of the truck, bring it with them, and just clear it out from inside the truck. So you only need the four or five boxes there, and just production crew or people grab the boxes on the way out, just leave them nice big empty cardboard boxes so there's no weight to them. And in the secured truck, it's not going to bob much. That is out of frame for about five or six seconds, but it's five or six seconds with no native audio. So you can have people jumping out of the truck and landing on the ground in the dirt and you're not going to hear a thing because they're not actually recording audio. As you said, April O'Neil is doing her report on top and they're doing a lot of ADR work in this film anyway. So I suspect they just had people stashed in the truck with the boxes who just scooted them out quickly to the right hand or to the left of the screen when the camera went right. That sounds right. At least that's the way I would do it, and given the budget of this film, that's probably the easiest way to do it, because it wasn't a huge budget. As I said, it, it took a while to convince people to, to put money down on it, and in the end, it took about five different production companies pooling their funds before they decided it was worth the investment, and as we'll discuss near the end, as always, we'll find out whether or not they got a return on that investment. All right. But yeah, as we are saying they're the foot are doing this, there's... It's all narrated by April O'Neill's report on TV, which is, you know, a massive exposition dump. Mm -hmm. It's probably maybe two minutes at the most as she's detailing everything she thinks is going on. We see them not just cleaning out the truck, but, you know, stealing a TV that a woman's watching on her balcony when she just leans into the window to grab something. And how no one's got a clear description of the people involved, other than that they're typically young boys. And that's about it. And we do focus on one in particular who has a habit of wearing Sid Vicious t-shirts. And <laughs> every single time we see him, he's actually wearing a Sid Vicious t-shirt. The director, Stephen Barron, was hoping for a punk rock soundtrack to the movie, but that didn't happen. So they go through, we get this, and as April is leaving one night, she stumbles on people who are robbing the Channel 3 news van. Yeah, Channel 3, not Channel 6. They changed the channel from the TV series, but hey, minor detail. Now, if you pay close attention, the head thug who's in charge of this truck robbery is played by Sam Rockwell, who was a nobody at the time. When I call him head thug, that's how he's listed in the credits, as head thug. He doesn't even get a name. But yeah, Sam Rockwell is in here. And then out of the shadows, these turtles on a half shell come in and, you know, beat up the foot, save April O'Neil. And one of them, Raphael, we later learn, leaves his side behind. So he loses it by accident. April takes it with her. And we go on from there. We learn that April's boss is riding her because she's digging into the story and aggravating the chief of police, claiming he's not putting enough attention onto her Foot Clan theory. We also recognize that her boss's son is the kid in his Sid Vicious t-shirts. So he is a member of this Foot Clan. And just to drive that point home, he steals from April's wallet that has money poking out at a very strange angle.
1: Just to backtrack for a bit, the scene immediately after... April is rescued, probably the best example of quick character development through writing is we have the turtles going through the sewers congratulating each other, and we see R- Raph is sullen and upset because he lost a sigh, Michelangelo's doing the more absurd congratulation expressions, Donatello is kind of whiffing it on more than a few occasions by making obscure phrases to say how awesome they were, and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, we even see them
1: heading back to the lair and telling Master Splinter that they had their first
0: successful fight, and again, that's another maybe three or four minutes we get it laid out. Following up on this and April's meeting with her boss, Raff is still upset, so he goes out sulking, and that's where we meet another vigilante in town. It goes by the name of Casey Jones, played by Elias Cotias. And this is also close to the time we get our first two cameos. All the turtles were actually played by, well, most were played by two people. Raphael was the exception. He was played by one. The vast majority of them have one guy in the suit and somebody else providing the voice. And all the guys in the suits have cameos in the film. So at this point, Michelangelo gets pizza ordered and delivered to a sewer grating. The guy inside the Michelangelo suit plays the pizza delivery boy. And then after Raphael meets up with a couple of purse snatchers, and stops Casey Jones from beating the snot out of them just for the sake of beating the snot out of them. He ends up you know, having a minor altercation with a cab, and there's a passenger in the back of the cab that's played by Josh Pace, who's the guy inside the Raphael suit. So there's a couple of cameos there. If you want to know what these guys actually look like without the suits, you'll be able to clearly see three of the four. April is still on the air, riding all this. She actually ends up, You know, getting more flack from the police chief and from her boss who's telling her to back off the story because his son was arrested for pickpocketing, and the police chief said, well, you know, let's make a deal. Minor repercussions for your son, and you get April to lay off. Doesn't quite work. She will not back off. And is actually accosted—well, that comes a little bit later. First, she's accosted at the subway by members of the Foot Clan, one of whom has a message for her and slaps her across the face. The guy with the message is Leif Tilden, who is the guy inside the Donatello suit.
1: Yeah, at this point, we've also gotten our first look at the Shredder, albeit in shadow. He's come to the conclusion that April knows too much and needs to be silenced one way or the other.
0: Yeah, and the Shredder is also someone played by two people. There's the guy in the suit and the voice. As I said earlier, there's a lot of ADR work, so all these actors were speaking on set. But you'll notice one of the things that they generally avoid in movies is talking over each other. So people take turns talking. They don't interrupt or speak over each other as often as people do in real life. In here, the only characters who talk over each other are Splinter, the Turtles, Shredder, other guys whose voices are dubbed, or all the humans whose voices are not dubbed. So April and Casey can talk over each other while Michelangelo and Donatello are silent. And then Michelangelo and Donatello will talk over each other while April and Casey are silent and so forth, because they were actually muting those parts of the soundtrack where the people in the suits were delivering the lines, and then the voice actors later were re-recording them, including Josh Pace. Even though he did record the voice of Raphael, he re-recorded them later because, as you can imagine, when you have a giant rubber turtle head on, your voice comes out kind of
1: muffled. All right, so... After the, uh, the with the fight in the subway, the footage confronts April, knocks her out. Raphael manages, to, who's been watching this, retrieves his sigh and basically cleans house and takes April back to the Turtles' lair. And this actually leads to the first of the flashbacks. You know, I think this is the first, yeah, you know, this is the first movie to basically tell Turtles' backstory in a mostly accurate to the to the comics fashion, with one significant difference in the co- in the comics the turtles were basically originally the, the pets of matt murdock uh, the, the premise is is in the comics that a, that they're the, the pets of this kid who sees this truck carrying radioactive waste out of control but hit this this old guy he runs out saves the old guy Drops the turtle. The turtles go down a storm drain and waste, reactive waste, two containers, or one or two containers come out of the uh, truck. And one of them comes down the storm drain, hits the turtles and also um, the rat that is Splinter, causing them to become mutated. And so the movie skips over the turtles were a pet of a kid bit and focuses more on Splinter finding the turtles in the ooze, them becoming mutated and becoming more intelligent and ultimately getting trained in ninjutsu.
0: That is a bit different in the movie, as you said, but at least it's more omission than anything because it's n- nothing that we see in the movie contradicts the way that you describe the comic. It just doesn't include details that you'll find in the comic, mm-hmm. which I'm totally okay with. You know, tell your story and that's a way of staying faithful to the source material without messing it up. At any rate, this sets off a chain of events where the foot attack April at home after Danny tips them off.
1: Actually, we, skip- we skipped another bit. The turtles take April home. They come back, discover that the lair has been attacked by the foot, attacked by somebody or something. They resume the foot, and Splinter is missing. At which point the turtles have to crash with April. That's when uh, April's boss and Danny drop by again, and there's a little humorous interlude where April tries to hide the, tur- hide the turtles from Danny and her bo- and her boss. However, Danny spots them, and it- and in the first scene where we finally get to see the Shredder in his full villainous glory. Tells the Shredder where the turtles are, and that leads to sort that leads to two big fights. One is, as is wont to happen in the comics and the cartoon, Leonardo and Raphael have an argument. Raph storms off, gets ambushed by the Foot, and basically beaten into a coma. And then the Foot proceed to literally crash into the uh, apartment uh, April's apartment through the skylight. And one of the things I do like about the way it's handled is they
0: establish the skill level of these turtles right from the start. When Raphael is first attacked by the foot on the roof, he's mocking them going, seriously, how do you guys expect to beat me after he just creams about 10 of them? And then 15 or 20 more show up. And then it's the same thing when they're fighting all the foot. Donatello and Michelangelo are joking about it as they're systematically beating them down. And it's just sheer force of numbers that cause the foot to win. Even there, it's not really a clear outcome. The foot have an advantage, then Casey Jones shows up to help the three remaining turtles, because, as we've said, he recognizes Raph as a vigilante, so they're on the same side, even if they disagree about methods, sees the foot beating the, the tar out of him on the rooftop, and shows up to help. During the fight, one of the foot actually hit a a cord below an electrical box, electrocutes himself, and starts a fire. And then they basically flee the fire in different directions. So it's entirely possible that the Turtles and Casey Jones could have taken down the foot at this point and held them off. That's a little ambiguous as they basically run for their lives. April loses everything, including her job, although at this point only Casey knows that because he was covering the rear when the phone call came in and he heard the answering machine which was hanging by a single wire. Because during the course of the battle with the axes, they actually fall through the floor of her apartment into the antiques. This is something that has bothered me ever since I was a 12-year-old watching this movie. The answering machine, where we hear her boss leaving a message, is hanging by one wire, and that's the power cord. There is no phone cord attached. So it should not be getting the message. Even then, the cord breaks. So it has no power, and he's still leaving a message on the machine as it falls and hits a
1: foot soldier in the head. Uh, I, actually, eh, I mean it,
0: There's about a second and a half of audio after, after
1: okay, it Okay, because it's like, I always, I always remember it as like, as it breaks immediately after, I know this comes as a blow, and then it breaks and hits a foot clan guy on the head. Yeah, it's already
0: in motion when the blow word is, is set. I I think they tweaked that in ADR just to keep the, the uh-huh. punchline a little bit tighter. But yeah, the cord snaps first. Okay, And as I said, there's only one cord there, so there shouldn't be any message being left in the first place. Yeah. So they do that. They retreat to an old, basically a cabin in the woods that April has, which is where April and Casey Jones start to become involved. The Turtles sort of train and focus on Raph, and Raphael recovers enough to rejoin them when they continue the training. And this culminates in a scene that is the last remnant of an entire plotline that was removed from the movie. So Leonardo basically meditates and makes telepathic contact with Splinter. And when the four turtles meditate together, Splinter speaks to them from captivity as sort of an image in the fire. Now, Judith Hogue has said in interviews that she was not happy with the final cut of the film. Early on, Splinter tells them there's only one lesson left to learn, and then they don't elaborate that or even return to it until this scene, when it seems like, you know, the lesson is that together, when they put their minds to it and and focus emotionally, there's nothing they can't accomplish. There was an entire running plot line that was sort of a mystic quest idea of them doing that spirituality. So ninjutsu was not just about the violence, it was about being at peace with the universe, and a lot of the things that tend to get ignored the way Hollywood adapts martial arts stories. That was all in here. But one of the producers felt, no, the kids just want to see the fighting cut out that fluff. And Judith Hoag thought that wasn't fluff. She thought it was very important in terms of the motivations and the stories and disagreed with them. So when they were in negotiations for the sequel she wasn't going to sign on unless they restored that fluff and brought some of that spirituality back, unless other conditions on the set improved, because they were shooting six or seven hours a day, sometimes 17, or sorry, six or seven days a week, sometimes 17 hours a day, and she wanted a pay raise. And they didn't get that negotiation done. So I'm sure we'll get to the secret of the use at some point, but we'll go into it in more detail at, at that stage. But it's when the Turtles make contact with Splinter and they get his message saying that when the four of you are working together, there's nothing you can't accomplish. That's not just inspiration because of what he says, it's confirmation that he's alive. And they head back to find him. At this point, Danny has also been talking to Splinter because he's being captured by the Foot Clan and they're trying to interrogate him. He will talk to Danny only. And Danny essentially runs away from the Foot because he realizes, no, they're being lied to. This is the second flashback scene. So, and Alex, I'll get you to go through that scene and let us know how well it matches the way you remember the comics.
1: Uh, again, the flashbacks in here is pretty faithful too. Basically, Splinter's owner was a ninja master named Mato Yoshi, who was a uh, rival with a, uh, another ninja named Uruku Saki for the same woman. And rather than the two of them duking out duking out over the over this woman, I don't remember her name off the top of my head. Basically. Matayoshi Yoshi and the woman he loves decide to skip Japan and go to the U.S. Unfortunately for them, Saki follows them there, and it's not explicitly stated, but probably a reasonable assumption is Hamatoyoshi Yoshi is somewhat out of practice, because we, we we see him, he's working as a construction worker, coming home from work, and both... Matoyoshi and his wife are murdered. Splinter attacks. Rokusaki, scratches his face, but gets his ear cut off. I think the big difference, probably between the movie and the comics, is in the comics, Rokusaki has a brother, and it's the brother who's the, the rivalry is over. And the movie just kind of simplifies it and says no. Rather than it, it's going to be the same guy, it's going to be the Shredder who killed. Splinter's previous o- Splinter's owner and his owner's wife, and just kind of put those all together rather than having an, an unnecessary complication. Otherwise, it's pretty much exactly the same. Okay. So, yeah, that comes through.
0: That does end with Splinter telling Danny. That's where the flashback comes in. He's telling a story to Danny that, you know, while they're, no one's really sure what happened to Oroku Saki, his symbol is the symbol of the Foot Clan. And that's when Danny realizes the kind of guy he's actually working with and abandons the foot going down to the sewers and living in the turtle's lair, because that's his last safe haven, having already run away from home, thinking his dad didn't care about him. And that's where the turtles find him, along with Casey Jones and April. They're sitting there making plans. Danny slips out in the middle of the night, and Casey Jones spots it because he's claustrophobic. I don't know what the inspiration for having that claustrophobic bit was, to have him upstairs in the van if he was meant to be down there with him. Apparently, Josh Pace, who, as we said, was the guy in the Raphael suit and the voice of Raphael, Josh Pace is severely claustrophobic, so every take, as soon as they yelled cut, that head was off, because he had serious problems just wearing the turtle suit, as they did. Those things had 60 pounds of animatronics in them, a lot of which were in the heads to get the facial expressions. They were not terribly durable, so they had loads of spare parts because they were getting damaged all the time. They were just very uncomfortable and very unpleasant, which is part of the reason they get redesigned every movie. But Casey follows Danny to the East Warehouse on Lairdman Islands, a not subtle reference to Eastman and Laird, co-creators of the Ninja Turtles in comic form. And essentially Danny and Casey are trying to break out Splinter and have to fight the foot as well as Shredder's right-hand man Tatsu, while the other turtles come in from the exterior and fight out that way, especially with the the foot actually coming after them. This is when the foot are getting proactive, not just with Splinter, but realizing, okay, these guys are back, let's go get them. Which leads to a massive confrontation between the Shredder and the Turtles. And one of the nice things about this is, in a lot of kids' movies, the heroes never see the villain, and yet they know exactly who they are on sight and what they're about by the time they get there, even though at no point it's been explained to them. Sometimes it's very known, you know, like the evil king ruined the land, everyone hears about them. This is a case where they don't know who is running the foot. They just know the foot are out there. And when they meet the Shredder, they're going, who's this guy? I don't know. Bet he never has to look for a can opener. And then they sort of pull their resources and try to take him on. So all they know is that they're getting in each other's way. The Turtles know Shredder is making the city a worse place to live. Shredder knows, these guys are interfering with my plans. But nothing is completely confirmed. He does have suspicions about their fighting style and where they might have been trained and who trained them, but he doesn't realize, or none of them realize, how closely connected they are except for Splinter. We do get, again, some nice touches here. When Tatsu returns from the original attack on April's apartment when he fails and beats up a guy in the locker room. One of the guys in that room is actually the guy inside the Leonardo suit, so that's the fourth cameo. We also have a case where the film was changed in post-production for the sake of the rating. This almost got pushed into PG-13 instead of PG. In the original cut, when Tatsu beats the guy up, he's implied to have killed him. So he hits the guy in the locker room, he goes down, doesn't move, they pull his mask off, and that's it. In this case, They were told, no, you can't do that. That pushes it into PG-13. So they dub in coughing sounds when you can't see his mouth. Sometimes you hear him coughing and hacking while you see the actor's nose and eyebrow as he's laying motionless on the floor. When they cut the camera away, they dub in voices of people going, oh, he's going to be okay, or he'll be all right. Just something reassuring to say, yeah, he beat him up, but he's going to be fine.
1: Yeah. Uh, In the earlier draft of the script, remember... I read the, noveliz- reading the novelization of the movie that was based on an earlier draft of the script as well, and the, the earlier draft of the script also implied that the foot also lost people in the fire as well, that they weren't able to retrieve everybody. So there was that bit too, which again, would have been definitely cut to avoid getting a PG-13 rating.
0: Yeah, there were a few edits that were made to keep it down to that rating, but it worked out well enough. We end up seeing the big confrontation between Casey Jones and Tatsu. And this is another thing I like about it. Casey Jones is basically a former athlete, with well, and still current athlete, but he was injured. He used to play professionally, now he doesn't because of the injury. But he's essentially a professional athlete with anger management issues. Athletic training and combat training are not the same thing. Yep,
1: I, I heard him. I've heard a comparison a description of Casey Jones as sort of like. Oh, for the character, um, Robert De Niro's character from Taxi Driver, except in a more family-friendly version, and a former athlete as opposed to a Vietnam vet.
0: Yeah, that could well be the inspiration, but as I said, the backstory presented here, he has had no formal combat training. You would expect Tatsu to mop the floor with him. And that's pretty much what he does until Casey Jones gets back in his element. We've seen him work well with baseball bats, with cricket bats, with hockey sticks. And while Tatsu's beating him up in the warehouse, well, he finds himself a nice bunch of golf clubs. And that's what he uses to take Tatsu out. He catches him by surprise, turns around, and just uses, I believe it's a driver or wood. Yeah, it's a lousy at golf. It's a
1: driver. Yeah,
0: he uses a driver and just clocks Tatsu right in the face. Partly because Tatsu ignored his own advice. Earlier in the film, when he's fighting someone and his opponent bows at the end of the match, Tatsu kicks him in the face and tells him, never lower your eyes to an enemy. When he's beating on Casey Jones, he takes his eyes off his enemy because he doesn't think this guy's a challenge. And by the time he turns around, he's already swinging that driver. Yeah, that's what takes down Tatsu.
1: Actually, it's a two hits because we have to give Casey Jones time to get the one-liner in. Gets, nails Tatsu right in the solar, well, it, it's debatable whether it's a solar plexus or right between the uprights, and then tees off right in the face and delivering a four right before, uh, calling four right before clobbering him.
0: Yeah, which is the point where he is forced to lower his eyes to the enemy because he's doubled over from the first hit. Yeah, so we do get, you know, Casey Jones does that nice piece. We see the turtles mop in the floor with the Foot Clan, and again, cracking jokes and everything about it, because these guys, they're just, they're grossly outmatched. Their only strength is in numbers when they're up against the the four turtles. And that's part of what elevates Shredder so much, because we have seen the turtles just marching through these guys, you know, like walking through rain puddles. It's more a minor inconvenience. And when they meet the Shredder on the rooftop, they take him on one another one and take him in turns and he takes all four of them out the first time through they regroup and come a second time through at which point leonardo is the only one who actually gets in a hit he delivers a minor wound to shredder's right arm and that's the whole um, that's the grand total amount of damage that the turtles do to him at which point shredder or splinter sorry who has been released by casey jones and danny comes and reveals to the shredder who he is where he comes from
1: oh we're, actually we're skipping a bit cuz um Shredder manages to get the better of Leonardo and has him on the ground, um, at his mercy, and he forces the turtles to throw away their weapons. At which point, Shredder mocks them, saying, Hey, the three of you alone could, might still be able to take me out if you work together, but now you're completely unarmed and I can totally just kill you all. At which point, then, Splinter shows up and reveals what he knows that the Shredder is a Rukusaki and takes off the mask. At which point, the turtles also come to the realization because they know the story.
0: Yeah. And this is one of those sort of inactive deaths that happen. So it's kind of like, you know, the end of Superman 2 still rubs me the wrong way because Superman allows Zod and these guys to die. You know, Zod falls down the hole even though they've been depowered were are no longer threats to anything but his secret identity. This is one of those cases. So Shredder goes after Splinter who uses nunchucks to catch Shredder's spear and whips him over the edge of the building. And he's holding him there and trying to talk him down. And Shredder could have survived except he decides to pull a knife and throw it at Splinter. Now, this is one where the angle of the throw, you can see that the knife would have missed Splinter, and yet Splinter still chooses to let go of one half of the nunchucks to catch the knife, which releases Shredder, and he falls. So it's kind of, you know, Splinter kind of sort of kills him. And then just to drive the point home, when he falls, he falls into a garbage truck that Casey Jones has already driven there to cut down the number of foot that can chase the turtles. Splinter lands in the back. Casey walks over. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry, Shredder lands in the back. Casey comes over and does the oops as he turns on the compactor. And then here we see the garbage compactor compact an empty helmet. Is it empty because they didn't want to actually splatter the brains around and get a PG-13 rating? Or was it empty because they were implying that Shredder survived and escaped? I don't know what the people who put this movie together were planning. The second screenwriter on this, there were actually two writers... Bobby Horbeck has a story credit and a screenplay credit, but they're separated with the word and rather than an ampersand, which means Bobby Horbeck did the first draft, but then Todd W. Langan came in and rewrote it. His name is listed first, so he did the most recent draft. You know, So basically, it took a guy who had come in with such stellar credentials as three episodes of Small Wonder, one episode of The Jeff- Jeffersons, and story credit on Different Strokes, and wrote the Turtle script. They had it rewritten by a guy whose credits up to this point included one episode of Pursuit of Happiness. And it's the second writer who would go on to write the script of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 The Secret of the U's. Which is why I kind of want to get my hands on Bobby Horbeck's script before it was rewritten, because I want to know what exactly this guy contributed that thought was making it better.
1: Uh, well, for what's worth, this leads kind of to the biggest, most pronounced difference between issue number one of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and most of the other franchises. Shredder dies. The turtles outright kill the Shredder. Like uh, it's, it's not like a oh he falls into explosion. No one could survive that. No, it's he's definitely for really real's dead. Eastman and Laird did find a way to bring the Shredder back but it's kind of one of the getting into convoluted comic book resurrection setups there, as opposed to the more sta- the, the standard model of, oh, you merely thought I was dead, but actually it was, uh, actually I managed to hang on to the edge of a lower cliff that you couldn't see, or that sort of thing.
0: If my understanding of Eastman and Laird and what their ideas for this were, essentially doing the whole thing as uh, a mockery or a parody of what was popular in comics at the time, predominantly Frank Miller's Daredevil, it wouldn't surprise me if they bring Shredder back in a way that spoofs the return of Electra in some way. But in any event, Shredder is gone here. And we get a little bit of celebration of the Turtles on the roof. April gets her job back with a raise and some other perks after some negotiations. We get the distinct impression that Casey and April are going to end up together. I do think they made the right choice by cutting off the original ending. So the way this ends, we see Casey and April wrap up. Casey or April's got her job back, as I said, they're together as an item. Then the turtles celebrate on the roof. Splinter, you know, trying to find the right expression of, of victory. When Splinter says, I have always liked Kawabunga and cut to the credits. The original ending, which can be found on YouTube, has all of that in there, but also tacks on a bit where Danny and April are pitching the idea to a comic book publisher with the turtles listening in from outside the window. You know, and this is a case where one of the turtles actually falls and catches a ledge and doesn't die. Which, I mean, it's a neat little in-joke, especially if you know the origins of it. But at this point, the story's over. And the way they play it when the guy's looking at it saying, no, you know what, I just don't think these people would accept this as a comic book property. It it would have just made the ending far too long. So that's
1: basically the plot. One thing I do want to mention in terms of, since we got through the plot part of the production side of things, is we have some moderate names involved in this. Sally Mink, Mink, or Minky, is one of the editors on this. This is her first movie. If you're a fan of Quentin Tarantino, you know that name. He's um, She basically was, for a big chunk of her career, until she passed away, Tarantino's go-to editor. She or she passed away in 2010.
0: And we'll be talking about Tarantino a bit later.
1: Yep. Also, this movie was co-produced by Golden Harvest. If you're a fan of martial arts movies, you know what that means. If you don't, Golden Harvest is the, is the Hong Kong production studio that discovered Bruce Lee, discovered Jackie Chan, among other big name actors, um, martial arts movie actors, and some of the f- martial arts consultants on this. In particular, I believe it's it's either Billy Liu or Brandy Yuan previously had worked with Wen Wu Ping, yep, yeah, that was um, Brandy Yuan, had worked with Wen Wu Ping on the first Drunken Master movie, and this is kind of his first movie as the, the main martial arts consultant. He wasn't actually the full-on fight choreographer, but he basically kind of, and I suspect with what martial arts consultant meant in this is for some of the main fight scenes, probably heavily involved with that, and particularly with, it, with supervising some of the uh, stunt doubles and that sort of things. Particularly the, tur- particularly the turtle stunt doubles. So we have a, they have a pretty significant pedigree there for, for some of this, in, at least in the martial arts side of things.
0: We do. And the,
1: the budget was a little bit more limited on the other side of things.
0: So we've already mentioned the guys in the suits. As far as the voice actors are concerned, there are a couple that are notable. Really, of the entire cast that we see in here on screen, the only person who was already notable was Corey Feldman as the voice of Donatello. Sam Rockwell was a nobody. Judith Hogue, who's had a decent career afterwards, was a nobody. Elias Cotillas, who's had a very impressive career, particularly in pennant films. Uh, some of his biggest movies are things like The Third Red Line. You know, he was basically launched out of this one. Judith Hogue had already started filming Cadillac Man, but it hadn't been released yet. So it was really that pairing that got her career going. And director Steve Barron hadn't directed a significant feature film up to this point. He started out as a camera assistant on Superman. So back to the solar screen Superman references. He was a camera assistant with Richard Donner's first Superman film. He was a camera assistant on Richard Attenborough's A Bridge Too Far and on Ridley Scott's The Duelist. He then directed a lot of music videos up to that point, some of which were instrumental in in getting MTV formed because people didn't believe you'd have a TV station just to watch music videos. And his work made enough music videos that were worth watching that people started to believe, okay, yeah, it's worth giving them a forum. There's enough going on of interest. That we can do this. Now that's where he got his start, and it was a great start. Sadly, I don't know that his career was uphill after that. Because following the of Ninja Turtles, he did Coneheads. He did the 1996 Pinocchio, which was okay. He did Rat, Dreamkeeper, Choking Man. He hasn't really had anything significant in his career since then. Uh, Coneheads, Pinocchio, and this film are easily the three biggest films on his resume, and this one is by far number one.
1: Yeah. You mentioned music videos and directed a lot of uh, prominent music videos. It's actually kind of, I'm probably worth mentioning to say some of the, to mention some of the videos that be, that he's done, because, like, when he's, it's not just he's done a bunch of music videos, he's done really big name ones, like, AHA's Take On Me, Michael Jackson's Billie Jean, Money For Nothing by Dire Straits, which was hilariously parodied in UHF. So, it's not just he did lots of videos, it's he did big videos.
0: Yeah, he also did videos for Brian Adams for ZZ Top, for Adam and the Ants. Yeah, you're right. It's pretty significant what he's doing. Now, let's take a look at how this did at the box office. If you've been listening to a few of these podcasts, you know the rule of thumb, right? Is the movie going to be profitable? Well, you look at the production budget. You need to have a domestic gross that's about two to three times the production budget before you can safely say this movie's going to be profitable. Now, there were five different companies that were pitching in on this film. The production budget was thirteen point five million dollars. The total domestic gross was one hundred thirty five million two hundred sixty five thousand nine hundred fifteen dollars. So it wasn't just two or three times the budget, it was ten times the budget, plus another sixty six million and change worldwide when you add in the domestic. So the worldwide gross of this film was two hundred and one million nine hundred sixty five thousand nine hundred fifteen dollars this at the time became the highest grossing independent film in history when i say we come back to quentin tarantino that's because it held that record until pulp fiction which just barely nudged it out this rounds to 202 million pulp fiction retook that record a couple years later with 213 million and it was it's a close enough number and a close enough time span if you actually sit down and adjust for inflation they're pretty much neck and neck So that's pretty significant. It is, to date, the highest-grossing Ninja Turtles movie. Although, as I said, we're recording this the day that the Michael Bay produced fifth Ninja Turtles film comes out. I'm expecting that that's going to beat the $135 mark. Whether it's going to be the number one adjusted, that's an open question. The reviews on today's release, I don't have a personal opinion on it. I haven't seen it. Honestly, don't plan to see it right away. The initial reviews I'm finding are mixed. Some are saying it's as fun as I wanted it to be. Some are saying it's not.
1: And looking at the um, rankings of total gross for movies in 1990, Turtles is in the top five. It's at the bottom of the top five, but it's in the top five, and it's beating big-name pictures. It's like Die Hard 2, Hunt for Red October, The Godfather Part 3, which immediately, while well, Godfather Part 3 wasn't as good as Part 2, that's not... I mean, that, that that's condemning with fra- that yeah it's not so much damning as fake praise it's almost called phrasing with fake condemnation
0: <laughs> yeah this is a case i mean we're pulling this up in this case because i had someone tell me last week that he felt the only reason Teenage Mutant Ninja journals did as well as it did in 1990 was because there wasn't a lot of competition at the box office so first let's take a look at what beat it in order the top four home alone ghost dances with wolves pretty woman i don't think anyone's surprised that those four films came out on top but as Alex said, there are some pretty significant films beneath it, and it, you can't really argue that this did as well as it did because it didn't have competition. It was followed immediately by Hunt for Red October, then Total Recall, Die Hard 2, Dick Tracy, Kindergarten Cop, Back to the Future Part 3, Presumed Innocent, Days of Thunder, Another 48 Hours, Three Men and a Little Lady, Bird on a Wire, Godfather Part 3 comes in at 17. We're talking about Martin Scorsese in a Godfather film. Yeah, it's weak. Yeah, it's got a higher rating, which tends to reduce the box office.
1: It's Francis Ford Coppola, and
0: Martin Scorsese. Coppola, sorry. Yeah, we've got Flatliners, Misery, Edward Scissorhands. If your people are going to say, well, it did as well as it did because there wasn't much competition in the children's film market. Well, looking at the family films, I would say they go Home Alone, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which puts it in number two. Then, Dick Tracy, Kindergarten Cop. Back to the Future 3 had a lot of family appeal, even if it wasn't specifically aimed at families. We have got Edward Scissorhands, Problem Child, Look Who's Talking too. a re-release of The Jungle Book, Gremlins 2. What else do we have here? Rescuers Down Under in its original release, Fantasia in a re-release, The Rookie, Jetsons the movie, DuckTales the movie. There's no shortage of competition this year. Even when we're getting down to the end of the top 100 into the 90s, we're still finding, you know, Pump Up the Volume, Opportunity Knocks, Nuns on the Run, Narrow Margin, The Two Jakes. These are movies that didn't do gangbusters, but they're still respected and did well enough in theaters.
1: Well, like, even slightly higher up, we got Predator 2. Uh, Predator was a fairly pretty successful movie, yet Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles basically didn't beat Arnie, but it did beat Danny Glover. And, oh, what's his face? Guy from Aliens, guy who played uh Hut- uh Hudson. Bill Paxton. Bill Paxton, thank you.
0: Yeah, it also beat out Dark Man. It beat out Joe versus the Volcano, Rocky Five, Postcards on the Edge.
1: Like. I mean, beat Rocky Five is particularly funny, it's during the uh, we, that we get a uh, Rocky joke in the uh, or ro- Rocky impression in the uh, movie from Michelangelo.
0: Yeah, we're throwing this out there essentially to respond to the idea that this did well because it was locking competition. That is patently false. Yeah, there's only one kids movie ahead of it and granted Home Alone slaughtered it in the box office. This made 135, Home Alone made 285 million. So that that's a significant difference especially compared to Home Alone's production budget of 18 million. It was way more profitable. I understand why they're still cranking them out. Number five is now out on video. But yeah, this this did very well, especially considering that the main studio it had was New Line Cinemas. That's the, the studio that is sort of the studio on record for this film. And going through their records before this, this is still the 11th highest grossing New Line Cinemas film to date. It's behind All Three Rush Hours, Elf, a couple of the Austin, Power, Austin Powers movies, Wedding Crashers, and of course spots 1, 2, and 3 are the three Lord of the Rings films. So it did well, not just in terms of the year, in terms of the genre, in terms of the studio. Really the only thing that, that doesn't hold up a lot, I mean granted watching it now, you could tell it's geared for a younger audience than I'm really a part of. If not for the nostalgia, I probably wouldn't have rewatched this film. That's really what, what kicks it in. The only other thing that kind of gets me, kind of sort of works for it, the film that they used was fairly cheap, not terribly high definition, which could be part of the reason we've just barely got a Blu-ray release of the first one, and even then, not a terribly well-reviewed Blu-ray, is because the actual film stock that they filmed it on is very grainy, and you could see a lot of that grain. Now, for a movie that takes place largely in the sewers, where you're looking for a dirty, grainy feel between sewers and warehouses and that sort of thing, it kind of works. But at the same time, it does mean it's going to be hard to get a really great Blu-ray or DVD release of this film, just because the film stock that they use is the kind of film stock that doesn't respond well to compression. It is going to mute the colors and reduce the contrast very seriously when you compress this film for home video release.
1: So before we get into the tournament, how it fair in the tournament? Do you want to talk a bit about the impact of the ter- uh, kind of the thrills of the franchise? Because this really is the indie comic that could. Uh, I mean, it's again, it's, it's a Independent content comic that got a 2000 issue initial print run, which kind of changed the comic book industry. Part of like, I met somebody who, um, a friend, uh, at a convention who was giving a panel, uh, mentioning that basically this is the comic that kind of kicked off the collector's boom in a way that nothing really had before. I mean, there have been, like, people hunting down, like, Superman number 1 and that sort of thing, but this is where the point where the collectors started really paying attention to what was coming out on the stands at the time, rather than waiting for something to come, to go big later. It was, yeah, it
0: was also one of the titles that was instrumental in what eventually led to the fall of the Comics Code Authority.
1: It's also the what led to the sort of creator's rights boom, because this is two creators working outside of DC, outside of Marvel, creating a comic that they owned on their own entirely, lock stock everything, and managed to get a big merchandising empire out of it, and that's money that creators like, for example, Rob Liefeld, Todd McFarlane, Mike Mignola, and others saying, hey... I'm creating these characters, I'm doing Spider-Man for Marvel, I'm doing X-Force for Marvel, and I'm not getting anything quite like what these guys are getting for their little indie comic, and this leads to things like Image, like Dark Horse, like what we have now with IDW, and so we, we have sort of the rise of the, of the creator-owned independent comic publisher. I could, we could probably make a reasonable case that if it weren't for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, there would be no Walking Dead.
0: Yeah, at the very least, there probably wouldn't be an image for it to publish through. And so there's, there's those bits. This success was also part of what, as I said, eventually brought down the Comics Code Authority. Because one of the reasons they did it on their own is the comic that they wanted to produce would not have had the Comics Code Authority seal on it. It didn't make the credits. And at the time, very few retailers were interested in carrying books that didn't have the Comics Code Authority seal. That was part of the reason that first print run was limited to 2,000 copies, because there's only so many retailers who were willing to take that chance on it, because they really needed to have the audience that they knew would buy it from the outset. And this one hit like gangbusters. But because it didn't have that seal, even retailers who were going back to try and get it realized they just couldn't sell it to their customers, even though they wanted to, because it was so hard to find. And that that Comics Code Authority that came out of the Wortham Trials in the 50s was severely limiting. And that's when they really started taking a chance on independent books without that seal, because now the direct market existed, as it didn't in the 50s and 60s, when the Comics Code Authority appeared to be a necessity. They had the direct market now starting in the 70s, which was basically born out of retailers screwing themselves over by their return policies. So they were able to get it to target markets, which meant that even if you didn't have that seal on it, there were some retailers who were willing to say, you know what, I can take anything you want to publish and put it in the hands of someone 18 and older only because it won't go on the shelves for regular customers. It'll just be for those who special order it. And there were a few who recognized that market and were taking that risk. The hard part was you had to pay for it to put in the customer's hands to say, do you want this? So that's why a lot of them still weren't taking that risk. Here they realized this would have been a very, very safe bet. They could have taken that risk and just run with it, and made the customers happy, and made the money off of themselves. And that's really what started etching away at the Comics Code Authority, which is now all but debt. Marvel and DC are no longer participating. DC was the last major company. Marvel pulled out first, followed very closely by Archie. Even though they didn't need to pull out, they just found... At the time, Archie wasn't doing any any content that wouldn't be approved, they just wanted to make sure that, you know, wanted to speed up production and eliminate that step. So they stepped away from the Comics Code Authority. DC was not the last publisher to leave the, the CCA, but they were the last major publisher to leave the CCA. And Without DC's support, it just folded. So we are now in a period of self-regulation in terms of the comic books. And it seems to be working. I haven't seen any really major problems now that the Comics Code Authority is gone just because... Sadly, comics are pretty much restricted to direct market sales these days.
1: Yeah. Most of the time when I see comics in non-direct market stores, I occasionally see them in bookstores, or if a movie gets turned into a, uh, if a comic gets turned into a major motion picture, you'll see, you might see the trade paperback in a retail store of some form or another. Like, I remember when Watchmen came out and was doing well at the box office, they had Watchmen on the booked racks at Target, at Walmart, and at Kmart, shrink wrapped which possibly at some places led to some unintentional hilarity, but that's something for the Watchmen podcast. So, might as well talk about how it fared in the tournament, then.
0: Yep, this was one of the wildcard entries in the tournament, so it was not present in round one when he came up with the initial ranking of those top 120. It first appeared in round two, where it went head-to-head against Jurassic Park and got destroyed. In that round, Jurassic Park took 93% of the vote. This took 5%, leaving about 2% for those who were undecided. Ah, uh, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Up against Jurassic Park, I would agree that is a very fair assessment. This is not a terrible movie, but it's definitely aimed at a younger audience. So if you don't have the nostalgia of being a part of that younger audience at the time of release, it's probably not going to grab you in any significant way.
1: I'll say that as far as for parental guidance or whatever, we mentioned that this movie's on the cot was on the cusp of a PG thirteen. Now this is a very hard PG movie in terms of Raf cusses a fair bit. It's PG cussing, you know, dams and that sort of thing. But I've yeah, got Raf cussing a few other bits, but it it, it it's if you're worried about the sort of thing in terms of your parent is making a judgment on whether or not your kid's ready or not for this movie, just something to keep in mind. Particularly if it's if you have a kid who likes to repeat words a lot in front of relatives.
0: Yeah, but then again, I'm thinking a lot of parents out there who are trying to make that decision. If you're a parent of 2014, you're probably in the target audience in 1990 and have a pretty good idea of what to expect. That's fair. Yeah, unless you're a very young parent now and were just too young for the film when it came out, which is also possible. Because a 24-year-old parent was basically born the year this came out. And by the time you're ready to be part of the, the Turtles audience, they were kind of on the way out. They'd never gone away completely. I've had students come up and try to tell me what the Tangent Ninja Turtles are and explain them and tell me what ninjas are, and I'm going, no, you know what? I get it. I, I know who these guys are. But anyway, that's where it is for now. Following this, I'm not sure which we're going to get up first. Tron Legacy, TMNT2, Secret of the Ooze, or another film that we've been talking about discussing. So that just depends on the editing time and the processing. I suspect it'll be Tron Legacy next. But that's about it. As always, you can send feedback to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. You can also put in a request to be a part of the discussions for any movie or TV series in these tournaments, since by the time we get all of these out, the TV tournament will be over, and we'll be getting a feel for which movies we're going to be including in that one. Thank you for listening.